Welcome back to another episode of Miscellaneous. This is episode two. Uh, today we will be reading a creepypasta. It is called Hellward. Um, by uh, this is Hellward fifty four. Um, it was posted today. Yeah, it was posted a couple days ago. Um, and it's on creepypasta.com. Um, I hope I don't get, like, monetized or demonetized before reading you guys this, but here are, here's the creepypasta. James and Linda Scott welcomed the arrival of their first daughter, Ella Marie. Nothing seemed to be better. The pregnancy was a textbook scenario. Nine months of classes, preparing a room, and eagerness for her to arrive. All seemed to go swimmingly. Linda was wonderful, and the birth went without fault. Ella was born, a beautiful six pounds and eight ounces, with a head full of hair and a cry that could wake the dead. These newly made parents could never be prouder. As the entire process came to a close, the baby was taken to a nursery. Linda, exhausted and tired, went to her new room. James kissed his wife on the forehead, and as he said goodbye, it made his way home. Elation and thrill filled James as he made his way out of the maternity ward. You headed home, Mr. Scott? asked the head floor nurse. She was alone, sitting behind the desk, with one hand in the bag of cashews, the other hand, she held a pen. She was tapping the pen on the table, as if she was sending Morris code. To someone far away, alleys across the battlefield, it annoyed James instantly. Yeah, it's three in the morning and the dog needs to be let out. The boss gave me instructions to take care of it before she passed out. That's the least I can do. Forcibly laughed James as he stopped at the nursing station. Well, that's nice. She and your little mom would be just fine, she said. Thank you. See you later, I guess, James said while walking to the exit door. Cutting it kind of close to with the birthday, aren't you? The nurse said as she leaned over the table, watching James walk down the hall. She looked like a pit bull, with her arms arched downwards, fists clenched, as the foundations to her weight. She was a large woman and presented herself loudly. She talked to everyone as if they were kids. She tipped her glasses down to her nose. She didn't look through the lenses to stare at down, you down. James slightly turned to his shoulders and snickered. Oh yeah, I guess having your kid born on Friday the 13th. I guess you made it past the count. She came out 1.23 a.m. I guess we're lucky. James said with a mocking head gesture, moving side to side. He turned and proceeded back down the hall. Make sure to take a left at the end of the hall, nurse said under her breath. But James ignored it. As he walked on, he simply waved to the back of his hand, not even turning to see the nurse. Thanks so much, nurse jackass, he thought. To say that the Friday the 13th comment bothered him. He was an important understatement. All night... The entire nursing staff kept bringing it up as if it was more important than the baby herself. Like some blasted almond that James and Linda should be concerned about. Who cares about Friday the 13th? Days like that just come and go without ever noticing it. When did the civilized world become so damn superstitious? James said out loud to himself. When the exit door shut behind him, he shook his head and laughed. Let them believe in their crap. These crazy people all over, and one of them is not my daughter. He proceeded to the end of the hall. The halls were like tombs. 
James never liked hospitals. The few times he was ever at one during the day was first was near the first floor. He wouldn't admit to himself, but hospitals always scared him. Especially ones at two in the morning. Something about the vacancy of the halls bugged him. Only being able to go two directions was forbidding on the scenes. The monotonously endless halls all looked the same and the sound of your own foot irked you. Because something made you feel like you shouldn't be heard. He felt like a gerbil in a maze. As he made his way down the hall, James suddenly realized he couldn't remember the way he entered the hospital. Peter's Ridge City Hospital was so damn big they had a security guard to show them the way. James was so occupied with his life and contractions that he didn't memorize the hallways. The turns, elevators seemed like faraway memories. He remembered the gift stores down in the lobby and the cafeteria he used before, but that seemed like ages ago. He reached the end of the hallway and turned out to be a T intersection. Which way do I turn? James asked himself. He touched the side of his head to trigger his brain in releasing an old memory. The wall in front of him had two arrows, one pointing to the right, painted in black. The other arrow, the blue one, pointed to the left. James couldn't help it, but something bugged him. Something told him to go left, but he swore the way was right. It was calling to him like a far-off musical tune, so the right he went. He smiled all the way, like men do when they trust their instincts. He carried onward, and James himself taking turn after turn. It was obvious that too much time had passed from when he left. He should have made it to some other section of the hospital by now. He didn't see an elevator or a stairwell, and there wasn't a person he could ask for directions. His heart began to increase in reps, and his worry grew into frustration. James began checking each door to only grow in rage with every locked failure. As he came into another intersection, he noticed the left turn led into a gate blocking the way. In the other direction was a hall that seemed to glow in a greenish hue. What now? He said, walking towards the green glow. It was either this way or back to nothing. He knew if he tried to go back to his wife's rooms, it'd be a failure. I knew we should have gone to another hospital, he said. When, we took an when he took another right before he found himself, before a set of doors, doors different from the ones he passed before, on them appeared a strange logo, completely black and made up of sets of three horns all of which branched out into central points and went straight up as if they were worshipping hands in church. The logo made him cold and filled with dread, as if it, its presence was something opposite. His existence, he hesitantly raised his hand upwards to push. Suddenly, instead of him pushing the door, it slams outward and cracks James in the face, setting him flying back, sprawled on the ground. He withered in agony and he touched his swelling face, then looked up to see a man, a man large and protruding as he filled the doorway with his hulking form. He wore blood-stained overalls and no shoes. Barefoot and dominating, he stood before James. James scrambled back up backwards to the horrifying figure stepped forward. His hands held in a farmer's scythe at, that was dark and rusted. His eyes looked crazed. His ground, his teeth, his sight of James. James screamed at the sight of the man, lurched forward. The psychotic giant seemed to send out a shuddering laughter of delight as he waved the weapon high. Ready to come down on James, James covered his face, closed his eyes, and prepared for the strike. Mr. Smith? What are you doing out of your room? Came a woman's voice. 
James still lay there with his eyes shut tightly. All seemed calm. He slowly opened one eye, and the towering man still stood above him. He, but he had his weapon to his side. It seemed to pause as left in a daze. There in the same doorway was a woman, a nurse to be precise. Her face was pale in the soft green light. Her hair was pitch black, pulled into a pony. The scrubs she wore to seem to be red and on her wear were splatters. Spots of black liquid, as if it were ink, was shot out at afar. Mr. Smith, you need to go back to bed. You're not well enough to be about, she said as she came forward. The woman didn't show a glimpse of fear. She stood before the beneath and grabbed his shoulder. She put her hand out and placed the scythe in her position, like a school teacher taking a child's toy. His head went down and he let out a sigh. <sighs> Here we go. Now it's time to go to bed. You've had a long season, she said while shepherding him. Back through the doorways, there was a walking way. She looked back at James. You might want to follow me, she said, shaking James. James still laid there, alone and struck with confusion. With what had happened? He didn't just know what to do. He closed his eyes to think. The nurse stopped and turned while the giant man kept walking. Well, are you coming? She said. James got up slowly and moved to catch up. He tailed the nurse and cautiously made sure to keep a good distance from the horrifying man. As they made their way back through the doors and the further down the hallway, James noticed the nurse standing about. They all took notice of him and merely gestured that it was no big deal. Just one second, the nurse in front of him said. She placed her hand on the small of Mr. Smith's back and guided him into another room. Inside the room, he clunked his way into the rocking chair in the corner. Mr. Smith took a seat and seemed to mold to his structure. There, next to him, were a pile of wood. The nurse took one of the pieces and then came into his hand. Out of her pocket, she retrieved a knife and gave it to the, to the seated Mr. Smith. He slowly and calmly took up the knife and smiled in delight, missing the rotting teeth glowed like stars as he began to whittle the wood. The nurse rubbed his shoulder and caressing as a lost child and then turned away, leaving Mr. Smith to craft as he rocked in his chair, the man looking up at James and simply smiled at him. Without hesitation, he went back to his block of wood. Then the nurse approached James and escorted him back out of the room. Sorry about that, sir. Mr. Smith is fairly new to the ward and kind of a wandered off. She said with a smile on her face. This doesn't happen all too much. We tend to keep our department on lockdown, which makes me wonder, how did you get here, may I ask? She said to James as they walked down the hallway. James didn't say a word. Still struck in a sense of shock. What the heck just happened? Who the heck is this lady? The nurse eyed him and said, mm, I see you've hit your head harder than you've expected. You're not the first person to get here, but it's been a while since someone from out there has entered. As they went further, they came back to a desk, another nurse behind it. Hello, Nurse Annie, said with a smile. Hello, Miss Weasley. Seems you have an innocent that has made his way into our ward. Could you call services and have them take care of this? My shift's coming too close and I don't feel like dealing with it right now, Nurse Annie said. Bewildered and still shaking, James felt like a helpless puppy, lost and searching for his home. The desk nurse looked at him as she reached for the phone and dialed. She shook her head and chuckled, and the 
the receiver held her ear like it was a soft ring. A muffled voice could be heard, and Nurse Weasley spoke. Yeah, Vinny, we have got an innocent down here for you. Yeah, he spoke. Yes, he has one of those maternity war bands on. So I'm going to assume he's a new dad or something. You might want to get down here quick. It looks like he's going to pop, she said, laughing at the pop compliment. She put the phone down and gestured an open chair. How about you take a seat over there, she said. James didn't even question the lady. He took the seat, sat there in the quiet hallway. An occasional nurse would pass by, and he could hear their scrubs brushing against each other to signify in their hurry. One carrying a strange beaker of neon green ooze, another pushing a cart. Muffled sounds could be heard from different rooms. An entire symphony became soothing noise. James looked down and tried to gather his thoughts and breathe. He felt dizzy and tired. The air in the hall seemed thick and hot, like a humid jungle in the deep southern continent. Mr. Scott? A voice as it came a voice as Jane looked up in surprise. James got on his feet and saw a man standing in a black business suit. His hair parted and shined from whatever con concoction was keeping it in place. He was clean shaven and pristine with a hairline mustache and hasn't been in style for decades. He was in the medium height and slim, not but not at all weak. He smiled at James and giving a little smile, coughed. I see you've got quite a shock. We're deeply sorry for your experience. I'm Vincent Fair. I'm what we call a Lijon for this board. He said as his hand reached out for a shake. James reluctantly took hold, and Vincent shook his hand the way a grandfather did. Maybe I can be of some assistance of you today, Vincent said. In this man's presence, James seemed to gain some composure. It seemed to be as unprofessionalism and the chaos he just witnessed. James couldn't figure it out, but he finally uttered his first words. Where exactly am I? Who was that man that tried to kill me? James said. Oh yes, Mr. Smith. I'm so sorry for that. Usually that doesn't happen. You see, Mr. Scott, this isn't a typical hospital ward you've discovered. In fact, you're one of the few that have privilege to discover it, he said while calmly guiding James forward. This place is what we call the Hell Ward 54. And you might call the lesser known sections of the hospital, he said while walking slowly. Vincent stepped as if every drop of his foot to the ground was thought out, planned and remembered. As they walked past Mrs. Weasley, Mr. Fair, and, and her shared smile, waved to each other. James looked right to the other rooms. Some of the rooms he could see had people sleeping in the beds. Sounds of being sprinkled in the atmosphere in various places except for the eerie green lighting. It appeared in another ordinary hospital ward. They approached another room and James stopped to stare inside. Mr. Fair, realizing this, stopped and turned around. He looked in his arms full of an expression of impatience. Ah, yes. Room 32B. Such an unfortunate patient, that is, Mr. Fair said. James was confused. What he saw before him wasn't a patient. It was a seeping mold of plastics and cloths, like child play dolls was melted down into a pile of goo. Parts of it seeped over the edges of the bed. James noticed the charred hand poked out from the mass, like he was reaching for something in a more solid form. How is that a patient? James asked. 
Well, this isn't your normal hospital ward, Mr. Stock. What you see there is a lump of plastic garbage is in fact much more, he said in his tone over the intercom with a voice. VD to room 32B. VD for room 32B. Mr. Fair grabbed James' elbow and pulled him aside gently, yet with a firm urgency. Behind them was a tall, lengthy man with a top hat and dressed in a tattered suit came strolling by. He looked menacing and dirty, but didn't speak a word. He carried a cane which twirled around with each step. He saw James and Mr. Farrell smiled widely. Yellow teeth, luminous, I don't know how to say that word, and eyes with bloodshot red. Mr. Ferris smiled and sort of saluted it like a Boy Scout. The top hat man returned to the jester, seemed to have glided into the room. The nurses all backed away as the particular man stood above the metal plastic. Just watch this, Mr. Scott, Vincent said as he pointed towards the room. The top hat man spoke strange exotic words, rhythmic and threatening, as if it were more a chant. The sound seemed to grow louder and stronger. As his voice rang out, a wind blew down the hall and seemed to be trying to grab a hold of James's arm. The wind flew into the room and swirled around like a mighty whirlwind. The beds, blankets twirled around, and the papers from the walls fluttered. But the top hat man appeared unaffected by the powerful gusts. The top hat man shook the end of his cane and rattled it like a baby's toy. As he did this, a massive plastic began to bubble and bend. A dark cloud above the bed formed, and to James' surprise, lightning struck down, setting the pillow and sheets smoldering. The mass took shape and seemed to repair itself, the bulging hand starting to move and formed a fist. Then back again and outstretched the fingers. In a matter of seconds, once the melted blob now seemed to be a fully moving child's play toy. It lay there in its bed, seeming confused and weak, but also completely alive. The top hat man placed a hand on its doll's head and left the room. He again passed by James and Vincent without saying a word. He took three steps past them and into the cloud back the smoke. He vanished. He was gone? James looked back at the room and stared in the doll's eyes. What are you looking at? The doll said in a grown man's voice. The doll snickered and grabbed the remote and turned it on the television. James stood, perplexed and speechless. He never in his life had seen anything look like this. He turned and looked at Mr. Fair. Himself was looking at the doll with a simple look, as if he, it was nothing new. What is going on? yelled James. You're not in Candace anymore, Dorothy, said the doll. James simply sighed and shook his head. He took a hold of James's arm again, and as they started down the hall. You see, Mr. Scott, when a person gets sick, hurt, or in need of medical aid, they go to a hospital. These people you see in these rooms, well, they're not real people. They're special, Mr. Scott. This is a ward just meant for them, Mr. Fair said as he spoke with passion and gusto. His free arm moved like a pentecostal pastor, significing the Lord's splendor. He slowly pointed to the room next to him and then across the hall. We take the ones that perform a special role into the world. The monsters, the killers, the demons, and whatevers. They all come here in dire need of aid. We've been offering it to them for ages. James looked confused, but he was a kid learning about where babies come from for the first time. Mr. Fair looked back with a grin. Mr. Scott, these killers, he used with his fingers as air quotes, oftentimes do a fine job at what we call restoring order and balance. They cause pain and death as a job and as a service to greater obligation. Their sworn duty is to do this, like a soldier storming Normandy. 
They perform without question, but every once in a while they get injured. Almost killed me, really. But when they do, they come to Hellward for medical assistance, Vince explained. You mean the guys from the movies, the monsters we know, come here when they get hurt? James asked while raising an eyebrow. Yes, in a manner of speaking, that living doll back there was a special case. Long ago, a known serial killer placed his soul into a toy store doll, and thus filling a role in society. In life, he was a mess, and death, a purpose. Their lives have been become more like legends. His power becomes an ancient voodoo doll magic. And his doctor, well, that's the man we just saw. Vincent just said while pausing for James to take it all in. The man in the top hat is known as Papa Lebega. He's been with us for ages. Also, he happens to be kind of an amazing cornhole player, Vincent said with laughing and tapping on James' back in a kidding manner. Over here, an interesting case. This patient is a shapeshifter from another dimension. He may very well be one of the oldest beings in the hospital. Right now, he's taken shape of a giant spider. He seems to have gotten his heart ripped out by a group of adults, and now he's in need of a transplant. He said while pointing to room 42A. How do you fix a dead giant spider? Asked James. It's complicated, but we make sure it's up and running before you know it, Vincent replied with an obvious pride in his voice. James and Vincent walked past the room after room, like a strand of dominoes that all lined up one after another. One each more particular and terrifying as the last. One was different in that it had no bed and just a giant tank of water inside floating a humanoid creature that resembled a deep sea fish. He remained contained in the glass casing a dark rotten egg, his mouth and gills slowly opening and closing as he seemed content and occupied. His gaze fell on James with his giant glass-like eyes. His mouth parted open as if screaming was no sound. It terrified James as he quickly looked away to another room that was in full surgery. The doctor was pulling out a bullet from a werewolf, withering in pain. The wolfman howled as a bullet came out as smoke exited the wound with a hissing burn. The doctor placed the forceps downward on the bullet, clanked in the metal plan, and the nurses all clapped in applause as the wolfman laid with his head down. Another room was the oddest thing he had seen yet. Inside was a giant eye. It looked sick and withered. The glassy lens was fogged in the blood clot. About a monster's technical, dangled about a limb-like spaghetti. The eye moved in jerking movements. He gave a deep stare at James and Vincent. Hello, Mr. Retina, Vincent said as he waved, stepped closer to the window. The eye kept moving as if it had an itch, but couldn't touch it. Mr. Retina had an accident on top of the mountain peak. Someone threw off, threw a molt of cocktail at him, and his vision has been severely damaged, Vincent said while shaking his head. You fix giant crawling eyeballs? Asked James. Well, we don't really abide by the same rules and methods most innocents here do, Vincent said. Say, are you thirsty? James and Vincent turned into a room and had tables, chairs, and a Coca-Cola machine. They sat and Mr. Fair got James a can of pop. Vincent relaxed if on break. It took a while for the conversation to begin and James took a little time to process the information. The Montesquieu's fan in the room's vent created an ongoing tone. Who funds this place? asked James, 
Vincent Reese and I Brown seemed to be taken back by the question. Our backings come through a terrible donations by means of undisclosed sources, Vincent said in taking a sip. Must be rich people, James said. Not really as much as you think. Most of it's a collective group of nations spending together to keep it running, Vincent replied while straightening his tie. I don't get it, James asked. The practice of general slaughtering is an invested process. Many high-level people understand the importance and thus fund us with what we need, Mr. Fair said while taking another sip. It doesn't make sense. How does it not get found out more often? Why did I find you out just the importance of it? James asked in a stuttering tone. Mr. Vincent looked to take aback, almost offended. Mr. Scott, it's extremely important. These aren't just mere psychos, maniacs, and monsters. These patients fulfill a service and to keep this world in check. Think of all the good that exists. You, yourself, and your newly proud parent of a little girl, right? James said with a certain intensity. Yes, yes I am. So when you saw her face for the ter- first time, when you heard her cry of innocence, you felt something special. You felt like it was goodness, innocence, and the life itself. He said while poking the air in a matter-of-fact kind of way. These great folks are the reason you felt that goodness. Without their work, then you wouldn't have a numb concept of life. You wouldn't value your daughter or your own life. The safety you feel in your bed, the security knowing the locks are on your doors to let you sleep, you feel that because of them. You wouldn't right now be enjoying that can of soda, Vincent said. James simply looked into the man's face, not truly sure as it was just to set, as it all was honest. Mr. Fair noticed a doubt and simply waved his hand and said, The pad makes the good, good. It seems ludicrous, but something clicked. Vincent continued after taking a long drink and swiveling the liquid can. They maintain a hierarchy of, of, over youth as well. For life to exist, there must be a sacrifice for some culture. The entity that supersedes our world requires that all ignorant youth will be punished. Therefore, our rules will do this, and many times our patients succeed, and all is good in the world. But unfortunately, accidents happen or victims prove victorious. It's fine and the laws are appeased, but good expertise is hard to come by. We found that maintaining the talent is important to entire the process, Vincent said. So you'll let them kill people for just being young, for being themselves? That's barbaric, James said while slamming his head on the table. <laughs> Mr. Fair con- smiled and continued. It's not always youth, Mr. Scott. Adults do get in the mix into liquidation, some, but seriously. Think about the last time you were at a community pool movie theater, restaurant, or amusement parks. Perhaps there was a time where a group of teens were there. This may be sound blunt, but perhaps they're being rude, causing everyone frustration, testing your limits of patience. Okay, yes, that happens, but, James said, Vincent interrupted. And what do you secretly wish? That they would stop? They would just quit their stuff and grow up? That someone needs to strike someone on fear. Vincent hurled in them, and Trifon. James felt like he was on the defense and said, yeah, we all feel that way, but we don't do it. You don't do it because our patients, they fulfill a duty by making youth fearful that the actions you do and attitudes they have can dire consequences without them. Youth would run rampant. Do you honestly believe 
condoms or fear of AIDS decrease sexually transmitted diseases in the 1890s. When your little daughter grows up, she'll think twice about her actions because of a legend. A legend that has truth to it. Vincent said with a raised voice. It even works with larger worldwide scales, he said, and drinking to a pause. Thirst pollution levels decreases because everyone's afraid of a walking giant monster and mutating rabbits is going on rampage, he added. He leaned in closer with a told-you-so way. You really think those damn liberal hippies had anything to do with the nuclear war? James remained silent, as if knowing the answer. And to be honest, the nuclear war made him laugh. He quickly remembered the time during his youth when he was a teen. He was working as a camp counselor for an entire summer. One night, the camp director told them of the story of a boy that was drowned in a lake. None of the counselors were paying attention, and the boy died. The mother swore revenge and went on a killing spree. She was killed by a lone survivor, and thus, it was rumored the boy rose in the lake as the walking, deadly behemoth, constantly preying on camp counselors that partook in the unrighteous behaviors. The story scared James so much that he never fooled around that entire summer, and to this day, he remembers how the story made him feel. Scared. But it didn't make him take hold of responsibility, and it would have been his first moment of actual growth into adulthood. Vincent could read the thoughts on James's face and simply bowed his head in acceptance. I worked at Camp Crystal Lake when I was young, said James in a meager admission. Vincent's eyes went wide and exclaimed, You know of Jason! He's one of our proudest achievements. He's been working at as the camp counselor line for decades, considering yourself very fortunate you made it out alive. Usually a lone female survivor makes it out of his grasp. Vincent let out a laugh and mumbled to himself, as if, if bewildered by James' disposition. For a while, James and Vincent remained silent. They took a various sips of their soda and made little conversation. The soft sound of the break room cooler became so loud to James that he started feeling awkward. James thought deeply and finally spoke. So how did I find this place? If this is real, how come the public doesn't know? James asked. This is easy. It's Friday the 13th. Our gateways are often open during the night and morning shifts. Most people are too busy or not around at the hours the portals are open. You found us at the right time by a slim chance. Did what a little few innocents do, Vincent said. Why are you calling us innocents? said James. Just a professional term we like to use. Nothing offensive. It's just how we see normal folks like you. Vincent said without making eye contact and checking his watch. James shook his head and gave a little chuckle as if it made everything sort of crazy sense. He couldn't truly believe that he was what he was hearing. It sounded like something from a ridiculous, stupid blogger's post. He had some to come up with some weird challenge and wrote up some ridiculously stupid concept while he was drunk on too much booze. But there was part of James that witnessed an undeniable something that he would never forget. A part of him that appreciated all that he'd witnessed. Something bigger. With a cheerier attitude, he looked up at Vincent. Well, I can accept all, can accept all of this, I guess. I say, thanks for informing me? James said, accepting a smile. He began to stand and conveying to Vincent that he, had known nothing, that he would like nothing more than to leave. Vincent gave James an approving smile and placed his soda down on the table. Yeah, it's getting late for you. For you, Hellward, this is considered morning shift. Very few of our patients work the day trade, he said while standing up and brushing off of his coat. The two made their way out to the break room, and James followed Vincent every step. So how do I exit the building? James asked. We're walking out that way, 
right now, said Mr. Fair, as he tightened his tie and checked his phone. Actually, are you coming here is a good thing. You don't know how important we value your input, Vincent said. Well, anything I can do to help, James said reluctantly. What do you have in mind? Mr. Fair remained quiet, which made James tense as they walked down another hallway. Eventually, after many turns, passing rooms, and spectacles beyond imagination, they came to a door, a strange red door. James noticed it and stood out amongst the entire architecture that infectiously contrasted against the typical mundane hospital style. The brightness of the door seemed to swallow all attention with its reddened glow like fire. From the walls around it seeped blood, like on the door read the wall, read Hab, with the winged logo above it. Mr. Fair went in the door as James held back, unsure if his next step would go any closer. James seemed to hover behind. A vague anxiousness came over him. The hairs on his arm picked up. This is our rehabilitation center for our patients. It also happens to be the portal to the new world. An exit, if you will, said Mr. Vincent Fair. While slowly smiling, James took a few steps closer as Mr. Fair walked in. A bright yellow light primitive toward outward. James found himself drawn to its glow as he took the steps and found James in a small room, walls surrounding him on all four sides. Vincent stood over the corner of the room, checking his phone and and texting vigorously. Then the door slammed shut behind James. He couldn't figure it out. The room had no exits, no doors, no windows. There weren't even vents on the ceiling. James turned to look at him, but there was a white wall, no red door. He looked down and noticed the floor was lined with a small, large, smooth stones, like those you'd find in ancient church sanctuaries. He was completely boxed in and gulped and cracked his fingers in anticipation. With one step forward, he eased as a gesture of question. What's going on, Mr. Fair? Does this portal work differently than the way it came in? James asked. Still looking at his phone, Mr. Fair looked up quickly and smiled. No, Mr. Scott. It doesn't work the same. You see, I mean, I, I mean, we feel bad about this. We need you for something bigger. I'm truly sorry this has happened to you, said James. Vincent... James felt like his expression didn't match his apology. He put his phone down in his pocket and continued, And I apologize for what's about to happen to you. The room rumbled and the center stone dropped down. James pressed himself up against the wall, running his hand up and down as if the door was still behind him. The smooth scraping of the rock against the rock filled the room as if the tomb of Jesus was opened slowly and seemed to roll on forever. From the hole on the floor came an object bulbous and shaped like much egg it came out of the shadows revealing itself to be an organic looking with a cross hatchets at the top of the resembled bloodless tips the texture of an egg like structure looked like a web and living liquid ooze forth out with its crevices and streamed slowly bilbited out the every very presence made its james nervous and scared like an organic time bomb ready to explode "'What is that?' James yelled. Mr. Fair took a step forward the object and placing hand upon it, as if it was caressing a newborn puppy. Without looking at it, Vincent spoke soft with authority. "'Recently, one of our essential patients perished, Mr. Scott. "'It is a great travesty on our part.' But he looked up at James with a favor in his eyes. "'Supremity entirely requires to be reestablished to be brought back. "'Without it, the ideas of man go too far.
Without it, mankind strives to be more, to be fearless, rise above the current state. He said it for citing from a pamphlet. A rustling sound came from within the object and turned it slightly. Shook. You, Mr. Scott, are going to help us in mankind. Thank you, Mr. Vincent said while stepping towards the wall. The egg came open with an individual flaps flaying to the sides like a peeling banana. The sound of stream came out with the air and room staled. James looked in disgust and shook with fear. Sweat pulsing from his face and soaking his shirt collar, he collided with the wall as if trying to break through and simply bounced like a bug. Please, no, I just had my baby girl, he screamed. For that we thank you as well. We have to add, we have, you have added the balance, Mr. Fair replied in careless tone. The egg structure jolted from inside a fleshy sound caught James' attention. A flicker of something jangly came pale and came out. Like fingers crawling up inside the edges of the crack, they dragged down its hideous body in its insect-like creature pulsing out of its admin. It contracted in and out as if breathing seemed to analyze the room with whatever its senses possessed. Its tail flayed in the air and balanced while the cocoon flaps, and it stopped. When it faced James for a minute, James just stared in horror, looking his eyeless creature stared back at him, a finger flickering in a move slowly. Mr. Fair on the other side of the room smiled with delight and rubbed his hands together like a child waiting in line for Santa. The entire room felt like a drain waiting for the faucet to give one more drop of water. James rose and made ready to defend himself, but his instincts proved one more determined. When the snack, when the sack of the spidery creature sprang out forward, hurling toward the heart a high-pitched scream as its legs went wide. The world around James froze with a glimmer of time James saw before the protruding anus of a creature's face. It greeted mucus jetting all over as it came back to him outstretched arms of a lost, long-lost lover. With a massive slam, it crushed into its face, instantly wrapping around its tail round James' head. James' body slammed into the wall. He flailed on the ground in blind rage, tossing and turning, pulling and tugging, and the thing around now latched to his face. The thing covered him with like a plastic bag, stopped any airflow. When James opened his mouth in a bandage quickly, the violently jammed his mouth jammed into his mouth. It slid down his throat, and James gurgled in pain. It felt offensive and harassing, like he wanted to, James to feel manipulated. The tail tightened around its neck, and James sank into the blackness and the pulsating spasms. As his arms flopped into the ground, all it seems darkness and blurry, and then James knew no more. The next day, in murky days, James Scott opened his eyes and he woke in the hospital bed, and dressed in some surgical gown, before him were three nurses, all busy and holding various contraptions, some ignoring him while other reading charts and others preparing for surgical devices on a table nearby. A low repeating beeping sound of could it be heard on his left, James turned his head into see its source. A monitor with a screen glared a greenish tint and a thin line ran across it. Jumping up and down every half second, James' mouth felt dry as he tried to speak. No words came out. Instantly, one of the nurses saw him stir and grabbed him, grabbed him a drink of water. The liquid was cool and soothing as it went down his gullet, like a Zamboni cleaning the top layer of ice. Of ice James' throat felt fresh and new. He spoke. Where am I? And all the nurses turned and looked at each other. You're doing fine, Mr. Scott, came a voice in the corner. He quickly recognized and turned. Mr. Far Fair sat with his legs crossed in a chair and leaning back. You've been out for nearly a day, and now we've expected you've awoken. 
Vincent said while casually flipping his phone in his hand. James quickly rustled into the urgency to get out of bed and away from his this place, but he found himself incapable at his arms and legs. He could not move. He looked down and realized there were straps wrapped him, keeping him secure with little movement. He tried all of his might to rip free, muscles tearing and sockets popping in every pull. Do not overdo, Mr. Scott, said Vincent. James retreated, retreated as in attempt for freedom and glared at Mr. Vincent. You son of a... I'll kill you, he screamed. Mr. Fair stood in his seat and approached the bed, lightly touching James' shoulder. Yes, I'm sure you would, wouldn't you? in a mocking tone. But that will not be happening, he said. With one initial punch, James suddenly felt a spike of pain. A pulsating ringing filled his brain and all of the air forms of his lung pushed out. James moaned in a deep swelling sound and his eyes began to roll upwards. His mouth hung up limp as if his eyes were numb and falling to the floor. Then a violent stabbing pain sprang from his chest. James convulsed in a way of quick, quick motion, actually tore one strap from his arm. He grabbed his chest and rolled over in pain, spitting and screaming into the pillow. The stabbing pain was coming out, and it made his veins feel like they were about to burst. The nurses stepped closer. The joy on their faces looked down on James as he withered on the bed. Then a great crunch came off his chest. James inside burned out like a hot furnace. Another crack, and James arched his back upwards. His, his hand stretched out forward. His uh, head bobbled like a flag in the wind. Spats of the bile. Saliva flew from his mouth and flooded his eyes. Blood soaked his gown. In one last feeling of pain, James' chest exploded like a hot spring. He only saw blackness, at, blackness as it dimmed the light about him. His eyes glossed over, and James Scott laid soaked in his own blood and dead. The nurse quickly extended her hands forward. Instead of attending James, she reached down to the nightgown and pulled it free. As she ripped it aside, another cracked splay of blood jetted out of James's chest, jolting his body in another spasm as if he was still alive. The nurses stepped forward and the chest opened as soon as a scream came out. One of the nurses clapped and the other said, ooh and ah, like a newborn kitten. What came forth was a bloody, elongated creature. The blood soaked, animal bobbed its head up and down, thrashing through the organs of its host. The nurses moved in and picked the creature up, quickly wrapping it in its blanket. The body of James Scott lay there with carnivorous hole from its chest, the ribs sticking outward and its jagged rods, rocks dripped with blood. The nurses pulled the blanket up and over James' body. Mr. Fair came over and went straight for the newborn creature. Hello, he said with an ear-to-ear -ear grin. We thank thee, O servant of wall, he said. The nurse went out of the room, still holding the creature. It gave another raspy, high-pitched roar as another nurse followed behind Mr. Fair. Stood in its room and looked down at what it was once. James Scott. He touched the ends of the blankets and said, In all day's work. Then walking out of the room, he shut the lights off, leaving the newborn father, James Scott, a mere faded memory for Hell Ward 54. Okay, I hope you guys liked um, this today's creepypasta. I'm not the best reader, um, so 
I was too lazy to kind of edit it. This took like two days to like film because I kept getting distracted. But I just want to like thank you for like reading all of it, even though I'm not like the best literate reader. Uh, I kind of like my brain kind of mixes up words sometimes. So I do like to apologize for all of my stuttering. Uh, I will get better at it and I'll probably get better at like cutting out the parts that like make me sound stuttery. Uh, I hope you guys like the story. If you guys have any creepypasta recommendations, please feel free to use the email in the description of the podcast. Um, the credit will be in the, um, description. I would like you guys to leave a vote onto the page and be able to, if you want to, wanted to read along, I hope you were able to do that. I know it's kind of late for me to talk about it now. But I really do hope you guys liked the creepypasta. I'm so proud of it because it's my first ever scary story on this podcast. So, yay me. Um, uh, I hope I can do them every day, like scary stories every day. Uh, But yeah, and let me know if you guys liked it. Thank you. Bye.